Hi, plant friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. This is Simon Hill, your host and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for information on plant-based nutrition. The Plant Proof Podcast is a channel to create thought-provoking conversation with industry leaders, qualified professionals, athletes, and more to help us become more conscious and form healthier and more mindful habits. And now it's time to introduce today's special guest. This week on the Plant Proof Podcast, I had the tremendous pleasure of sitting down at my house in Bondi with Osha Ginsberg, or Andy G, or, or Andrew G, as you may know him by. Osh, Osha is an iconic TV host here in Australia. Before working on TV, on, on some of the largest reality TV shows like Australian Idol and The Bachelor, Osha you know, made his name in, in radio and working as a video jockey for, for Channel V. And it's safe to say that anyone who was born in the 80s or, or 90s who grew up watching TV as a teenager in the early 2000s knows exactly who Osha Ginsberg is. Every time he was on TV, he had a, a huge, huge smile. He had the blonde locks and he would bring so much energy to whatever show or production he was involved in. And Osha's had a tremendous journey. He's been in the entertainment and media industry for 20 plus years. Through this journey, he's had some some great ups and, and celebrated many, many tremendous achievements. But he's also had some some really severe lows and, and his own mental health battles, his own battles with addiction. Osher's soon to, to release his new book, which is titled Back After the Break. And and with this book coming out, I thought it was fitting to to get Osh onto the show. He had me on his own podcast. He has a, a great podcast which you should definitely look up some 200 and something episodes deep with amazing guests and and content, which I personally find very, very insightful and interesting. So Osh came over and and in this podcast, we, we learn about the real guy behind the smile and behind the TV host, which so many of us have never seen and never had the chance to to know and understand and i really hope you enjoy this podcast we talk about everything from mental health from antidepressant drugs to alcohol to veganism and the food that he eats to exercise and and how he has managed to heal or stay on top of his mental health and live live a life where he can be in the moment and uh, be happier so sit back enjoy and as always if you have any feedback about the plant proof podcast shoot me a message on instagram send me an email simon at plantproof.com and if you're enjoying them please leave a review on itunes this is a this is an exceptional exceptional beverage you've made for me simon what am i drinking you've got a uh well it's a plant proof variation of the Turmeric latte. Good branding. Good yeah, branding, Simon. Brand. Good branding. Great, great branding. Thought I'd drop that in there. It's delicious. <laughs> What's in it? So uh, we've got some little bit of uh, turmeric powder, some black pepper. Yes. It just, just helps you absorb that 
the benefits of the turmeric a little bit more and gives it that spice. That's where I've been going wrong with a black pepper and you froth the, the almond milk. Yeah, I cheat a little bit. You you probably could do it a bit more authentic, like in a pot, but I've got the Nespresso. <laughs> you could walk to work, but people drive. Who gives a shit? You don't you don't you don't farm your own food. You pay some you pay someone to farm it for you. It's yeah. okay to use a machine. This is so, delicious. It's the pepper. That's the key. Pepper. I've never made it with a pepper. And then a little bit of cinnamon goes in there as well. See, I like it punchy. I like I like things punchy. As a as someone who's I'm experimenting now with so I've kind of got a bit into the the idea of the science behind, uh, there's a book called years ago, a book called Fast Food Nation, which talks a lot about the labs where people test mouthfeel and, you know, the particular parts of the Moorish parts of your tongue that make you then go for another Pringle, go for another Pringle, go for another Pringle, like yeah. just hitting like a rat, hitting a button in a lab, you know, just hardwired straight to your brain that just basically make you consume a product that's essentially probably bad for you. They're getting you addicted. Yeah. So I've been really fascinated with like, what, what makes, so this, like, for example, in the morning when I make my, my breakfast, I, I, I want to put some fruit in there. So I put a banana in there, but I put the banana in there. I'm like, oh, it's not, not really doing it for me. So this morning I threw, I cut up an apple, same amount of fruit, but with the crunch and the skin and all that. And when that, I'm going to use a naughty word here, the mastication, Simon, <laughs> makes it far more satisfying. And I feel far more full afterward. It's delicious. And so I'm all about what's a little, little bit of something that'll make the, the fullness arrive and make the satisfaction arrive. Because that's, uh, as someone who used to put, have a fair bit of weight on my bones, I, I like the idea of, I don't need to eat anymore. <laughs> Being a natural fun. sensation it's, rather than just It's so fun exploring these, all these different little intricacies mm. of, of food. Oh, yeah, I agree. And how something so small can change, you know, an entire experience. And no doubt we will be getting into oh. your, your experience with food in this there's a lot of it in this episode now oh, this is a good drink mate welcome to the plant proof podcast i'm so thrilled to be here i'm so grateful you came on my show and to to turn around and, and have it the other way around I, it's rare that people get me on this side of the microphone but particularly with um with the book coming out and with the magazine and stuff like that you know it's, i'm great i'm just really grateful that i have the chance to be here you're building something incredible simon you really are you've built something so fast so so but you know why it's because you're doing it authentically man and we talked about this on my show you're doing it from a place of his fucking science man all right here's me saying this here's three articles that will show it <laughs> you know you're not just kind of waving a dream catcher on youtube and going you should do this you're like no right it's right here it's on pubmed go look at it <laughs> you know and and i think people really yearn for that dude people learn, you. yearn for authenticity in in what they're putting in their body and facts uh what's that famous line you're entitled to your own opinions but you aren't entitled to your own facts yeah and um when you throw facts at people like for example, um, you posted it really, and it's something. It was the very reason that I started veganism and all well, veganism, eating only plants, was purely. It started from an environmental impact space of, you know, this is really unsustainable. You know, we can't be eating this way or creating What's this product. What's the end game? Yeah, we can't. We can't be creating this product for everyone on Earth. Mm. Twenty something years ago, when I started, and then you sent that article the other day, going. We've done the maths. We've just drawn, we put a ruler on the graph of where things are going and here's where it's ending up. And I sent it to a scientist mate of mine who's, I send him all, all the stuff that I, yeah. I see a paper. And I go, oh, that's interesting. I send it to him. And he's the most skeptical motherfucker you've ever, ever, ever seen. He's a really interesting guy. Ruben Meerman wrote a book called Big Fat Myths. Okay. Yep. Which I'll, I'll ask you another question. But Ruben wrote back, right? Damn. 
that's unsustainable. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the most skeptical guy ever. <laughs> Long story. Great to be here. Mate, thank, thank you. Now, now, it's, now it's my turn, and uh, but I do, I do appreciate that you, um, what you've said about plant proof, and uh, means a lot to me. So but it's true, you. man. It's true. Now, the we, we've changed seats today. Yeah, and like you said, not many, not many people get the chance to interview Osh, and, no. and usually you're you're a host. I don't, I don't feel like I need to do a great introduction to most of the listeners because Osh, you know, clearly. You're a humble man, but you're a household name in, in, in Australia, and you've been in in media for a number of years since what radio and then Charlie yeah, and yeah. And I started in radio when you were ten, Simon. So ninety uh, four. <laughs> that's right. So when I was when I was uh, a boy in in uh, late primary school and then in high school, like your face was everywhere on on TV. Yeah, and you know you've. You've had you've gone by a number of different names. Yes, you know there's been name changes. It and, has. Um, originally, I think it was Andy G when I first. Yeah, first yeah, that was a radio one from that hungover from FM radio. Yeah, Andy G, Andrew G, and I've actually had to write a few notes here because there's been quite a few. But, <laughs> Sorry um, about but, that. But every, every you know the whole time you you had the blonde locks, the big smile. Yeah, you were essentially a face. Or a brand, a show, mm. um, and not small shows, big shows like Australian Idol, yeah, which was what, what the biggest show of its time. At the time, it was the highest rating TV show in the history of anything. I think the the next highest one. It was the biggest one that it was nothing to do with sport or news. So, slightly less than watching Princess Diana's funeral is how many people watched that first Australian Idol grand final. Something like one in four people or one in five Australians saw it, which is bananas when you think yeah. about how many people are in our country yeah so that was that was around i think that was towards the end of my high school days so like 2003 yeah that was it yeah around then and the hysteria and sort of phenomena around this show was crazy everyone was talking about mm. it it was there was no internet there was nothing else to do yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> um it was it was it was filling time for people and 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 it was very entertaining you hosted that show with james matheson and yeah. the two of you brought like an electric energy to the show in terms of, of hosting it and engaging the audience and, you know, all the people watching at home. Now, you know, no doubt you've, you've then gone on, sorry, and, and hosted The Bachelor, yeah. which, you know, a good friend of mine, Timmy Robards, he, he, he was the first Australian Bachelor. So happy. <laughs> so happy to watch him fall in love, man. It was really nice. We'll talk about Timmy later yeah. on, but I'm just really happy for him. Yeah, no, he's he's a great fella, and I actually just got back from their wedding. So yeah, yeah, they've, they've they've gone on and and got married, and um, you know, really happy together. And that and that all came from reality TV. I was there. I was there when they met. <laughs> I was there the day they met. The moment they met, I watched the moment they met happen. He's a very driven man, Tim, and I really watch the the greatest part about working on a show like The Bachelor is watching the journey. Yes, that's a reality TV word, and I don't care that I'm using it. Um, it's watching the journey that these men go on. You know, Tim Robards shows up. Oops, oops, a daisy. We've got some computer power here. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about that noise in a moment. Um, watching the journey they go on because, you know, ultimately someone like Tim shows up, he's fucking ripped. You know, he looks incredible. He's got an amazing career. He's still single. Something's going on. Something you know, like someone like, Sam, someone like Sam Wood shows up. He's got an amazing business. He's got 80-something franchises. He's got this incredible gym. He's like, looks incredible. Still single. Something's going on. And I watch these men have this transformational experience emotionally where they go, 
Oh. But the penny drops. And they find it. And they get, they get to open that last part of them up and they get to fall in love. And I get to watching another man go through that is really beautiful. It's really, despite everything, like for me, that's a really, it's yeah. the nicest thing. I guess it's a different experience for you as well. Yeah, it's really nice. Compared to being at home, look, you're, you're sort of there feeling the raw emotions <laughs> on that, that, that day and yeah. night. Yeah, it's really, it's really lovely, Simon. It's, it's, it's really lovely. It's, it's wild. You know, I remember when I was, when we were doing Idol, I mean, we'd come from Channel V, which was the, you know, before YouTube, that was the only place you could watch your music videos. And it was, you know, it's, it's the most, you know, we were like a visual triple J, basically. We were the, we were the conduit to music news and, and artist access is before Snapchat, before you could be in Kendrick Lamar's pocket, right? And have him Snapchat you or, or, or show you what is going on in this day. We were the, we were the key to that. And so we'd done a couple of years on that. And then, um, and, and the whole time I remember standing there on stage and at Idol and I'm like, well, I wonder if all you people know that I'm fucking vegan, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm standing here and, you know, it's like, yeah, you look at it. This is, this is what you might think it looks like someone who, you know, has dreadlocks and is trying to sell you some shit in the market somewhere. It's like, no, this is it. You're looking at it, <laughs> it's, you know, the whole time. It was tricky getting food on the road back then. Yeah, it was tricky. Yeah, because getting- you've been, what, you've been vegan for how many years? Uh, 2002 was the last, that was kind of like the, the, the conscious, that was, okay, eggs, I'm out. Yeah. That was it. But before that, I hadn't eaten red meat. I think I started eating no, no chicken about 2005, uh, 1995 and then- 95? Yeah, 95. Was no, what, what, no made chicken. You, what made you ditch the chicken? Oh, uh, look, uh, it was a combination of factors, Simon. I was on holidays with my, my then girlfriend. She and I were in Byron Bay. We were at a restaurant called The Piggery, which was a slaughterhouse, but because it's Byron, a bunch of- That's different. A bunch of vegos got hold on it and went, we're going to reverse the karma on this by making it a vegetarian restaurant. Oh, they took it over. Yeah. They made it a vegetarian right. restaurant to reverse the karma on the place. Brilliant. And there was a cinema in the back. And I'd never eaten, I don't think I'd ever eaten tofu before. But they kept the name. Yeah, they kept the name. They called Because it, it was called the Piggery. It was a rock and roll yeah. venue before that. And so they kept the name of the place, that's right? Cool. It's Byron Arts Factory, if you, that's where it is. And then I, we had dinner and I ordered a green curry, but I ordered it on a tofu. And I'd never had it before. And I was like, this is amazing. This, I feel so good and I feel so full and my body's glowing with all these nutrients and this is magnificent. I'd only ever eaten kind of a chicken curry before. And then it was, it had a cinema in the back and you got a dinner and a movie. And in the back, we watched afterwards, we lay on these big couches and watched an extraordinarily powerful film called Baraka, right? And it was during this film, if anyone's ever seen it, there's a, a scene that kind of uh, compares humans going to and from work on a subway station with chickens in a, in a factory sorting situation. So you see all these little chicks coming down a belt and then someone's sorting them from viable to non-viable. And then these, they go down this belt and they're plopped into these cages. And then there's this massive tracking shot that goes for, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half, just down thousands and thousands and thousands of cages. And I remember thinking, I don't need to eat anything that's lived like that. I don't think I want that in my body. No. That connection. Yeah. And that was it, you know, because I'm still, it was cheating because I'm still full of this glow of this beautiful green curry and I'm looking at it going, oh, right. Okay. I feel so good, but I don't have to feel, I can feel this good without that having to happen. Yeah. All right. I can do that. So chicken and then red meat about three years later, 
fish 99. So, and my ex was a lactose intolerance, so we didn't have dairy in the house. So, and then- So that helped. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so then 2002 when she and I broke up and I was by myself doing groceries for the first time, I didn't buy eggs and that was it. <laughs> so it's, it's been there. Yeah. I've, I've dabbled back and forth. You know, I've, I had a, I had a run in with when I lived in Los Angeles and we're going to farmer's markets and stuff like that. And there was a bloke selling eggs and he had photos of his chickens because oh. people must've asked, you know, and they were vegetarian fed and they lived in the other house out the back. And, you know, I was like, all right, I'll eat your eggs. And they were really good. But, uh, I get, I get cold sores, which is another nice name for face herpes. And, um, the, some enzyme in the eggs makes them come on really quickly. Okay. So, so I need eggs so. in ages. And so I started eating eggs again and I boom, cold sores. I'm like, okay, can't have that. And I dabbled a little, a tiny little bit in eating bugs for a little while. I was, uh, wow. yeah, mealworms. Really interesting. I had, I like, I got a little pack. Was that in, in Australia or in yeah, Asia? Yeah, it was or? here. It was here. Um, you know, I just kind of sprinkled them on some salads about a couple of years ago. Stuff you'd buy or just yeah, yeah. get out of the backyard? No, or? yeah, you buy it. Mealworms. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm really fascinated in, you know, look, if you can't have meat, you know, uh, you know, what's the, but people still want to eat that. They still want some sort of protein. It's, you can't expect everyone to be vegan. We can't sustain that. How are we going to get this kind of density of nutrients? Uh, uh, insects seems to be yeah. pretty low impact. So I bought a little packet, I don't know, like 200 grams. And I think I ate like half of it over the course of three or four salads. Like, oh yeah, that's all right. Is it all right? That. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Some, some cricket flour, which is I've like- I've seen a bit of that coming out. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, particularly yeah, yeah. I mean, insect half protein. the world eats it, man. Yeah. You know, you know so I, I did, but you know, that was only like a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not some gold star, you know, Nima Delgado, never touched my lips kind of guy. You know, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I've put way worse things in my body. Don't worry, Simon. And we're, and we're going to no, 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 no doubt touch on some. But of yeah, that. But, but yeah, um, yeah. I've kind of yeah, I've been eating this way for a for a really long time, and and still, you know, still learning, still getting. Especially the last six months, as um, I came off, I was on meds for OCD. I went through a pretty heavy mental health situation, and I still, you know, I still live with it. But I I work really hard, so I don't have to. At the moment, I don't need to take meds. There's a big difference between needing to take meds. And no, sorry, there's a big difference between not taking meds and not needing to take meds. But right now, with my doctor's his decisions, I don't need to take meds right now. All right. It's versus, not versus like, I need them, but I'm not taking them. All right. Yeah. So I work really hard every day to make sure that I can live a life that manages what goes on in my brain. And that involves diet, exercise, prioritizing of sleep, purpose, you know, working hard on, you know, every single day, putting self-care habits in there that just kind of fortify the gap left a by lot, a lot of different pillars left gap. by le, the gap left where the medication yeah. was. So the OCD and, and, and sort of mental health, mm. you know, and, and battling with that, mm-hmm. is that something that you sort of attribute to the pressures of working in, you know, very high pressure environments, you know, in media and hosting and everything goes on with that? Or if you look back to say your childhood, was this, was there signs of, of that, from your early years or? Oh, yeah, man, I was, a, I was a weird kid from early on, early on. Where, where I, did you grew up? Ruminating, ruminating panic started when I was, I think the first time I remember it, the, the full ruminating horror panic, I think I was five. Yeah. The first time it happened. We, I grew up in Brisbane. The short story is I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not Australian. Well, I wasn't Australian until I was 25. When I became Australian, I'm an immigrant, but I'm white, so no one seems to mind. You're born in, wait. I was born in London. London. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, 
when mummies and daddies love each other very much. So, <laughs> uh, so elaborate. <laughs> so my mother is Lithuanian. Was Lithuanian. She passed away now. My mother is from Lithuania. My father from Prague. He's Czech. I've been there. It's right. Beautiful place. Yeah, it's right. glorious. Charles Bridge. Yeah, it's a glorious place, mate. And uh, in '43, the Russians. The Germans, the Nazis were occupying Lithuania and in 43, the Russians came in and my mum's family went, fuck this, we're out of here. So we all know how bad the Nazis were. You can imagine how bad the Russians must have been if they went, fuck, we're out of here if these guys are coming. So yeah. <laughs> they, they got out of there. They never, ever saw their home again. They were refugees. Uh, she traveled through Europe, I think, for about, I don't know, six, nine, nine months. And they ended up in a refugee camp in Germany until after the war, 1949, they came out here to Adelaide and started a life there with a bunch of other Lithuanians in Adelaide. And then she met a man who was cleaning up nuclear tests that the British were doing in the South Australian desert. She traveled back with him. Uh, They broke up, but she stayed in London finishing her medical degree. And by then, the same Russians had decided to drive some tanks down uh, Wenceslas Square because the Prague Spring was happening in 68. And my dad had just graduated. He was a doctor in, in Prague. And everyone was like, Communists coming. They've got tanks. You got to get the fuck out. You're a doctor. Yeah, uh, wow. You're not going to have a good life, man. You got to go because it's gone. And so he managed to escape and uh, hitchhikes his way across Europe. His professor managed to smuggle his papers out so he could now get work. Hitchhike. Yeah, he hitchhikes his way across Europe. Yeah. Look, yeah. people just, yeah, people, it was full on. He was 24. Never, yeah. never saw his country until 30 years later when he and I went back. And was that, did he do that with his friends or was he no, by himself? By solo. Himself. Yeah, yeah, solo, man. And you hear these stories and you think how lucky we are. <laughs> Simon, so lucky. They, but they met. They met at a hospital in Stoke-on-Trent and then my big brother showed up and then I showed up and by then my grandfather who brought the family to South Australia was, uh, got sick. And so they came down. They were supposed to just come down for a year, but we ended up staying. And so, yeah, we stayed in Adelaide for a bit and then moved to Brisbane in the late 70s and I was in Brisbane until 98 when I moved to Adelaide to do radio for four months before I got the gig on Channel V in 99. So, yeah, and then I moved down the street from you. Beautiful Sydney. To Ramsgate Avenue, which is about 200 metres from where we're sitting. And, um, yeah, <laughs> that was... Uh, it's, a, it's a hard place to live around here, isn't it? Oh, look, <laughs> um, I had to move out of Bondi because it just got, kind of got a bit much. But in my late 20s when I was... Uh, when, oh, sorry, when I was your age, Simon, <laughs> I, was, I was 28. I was single. And I was on the highest rating TV show in the history of the country. Bondi was all right. It wasn't, wait, you know, it was, it was an okay place to be. Like I, I approached it in a very unhealthy way um, because every night was drinking night. But yeah, it, it was there if you wanted it. I learned to surf here. Yeah, I, had a, I took my first yoga classes here. I went to full Bondi, Simon. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was great. Yeah, it was, that's, people tend to go all in, don't they? Right, if you're here, if you're uh, Andrew G on, yeah. Well, it, it was transformative. <laughs> it was truly, it was truly transformative living here because you know I had uh, access to this place and this space that I'd never. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Brisbane, man. You know, mm. I didn't have a beach down the road. The beach was on the Gold Coast, and it took forever to get there. And when you got there, it was full of bogans. And, and so, but here, I kind of. You know, learn to enjoy the ocean and and uh, swim every day and around on the soft sand every day and a, a big part of you know getting my mental health right after I broke up with my ex was running on the soft sand every day and just I putting the two and two together of like oh if I run I feel better oh okay yeah. all right and the more laps I do the better I feel oh okay <laughs> and that was a big part of me you know getting my head straight and kind of redefining who I was in many ways and becoming the person that 
you saw on Australian Idol. <laughs> so growing up in Brisbane, yeah, did you have your eyes set on being a host and a career in the media and in the public no. eye? Like so you're saying you sort of, you know, had these sort of panic attack type um, anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were young. It seems like the jumping into the public eye would only heighten that. What made you go, hey, I'm, you know, a, li- a little bit anxious in certain environments, but put me up in front of millions of people on TV and I'll crush it. Well, that's, the, it's, that's exactly it. You know, just ruminating anxiety. My, my, my head has a tendency, my, my brain has a tendency for anxiety and ruminating anxiety, which probably made my ancestors be able to survive, all right? Because they were the jumpiest ones who were most afraid of shadows, okay? So they evaded predators. Yeah. However, <laughs> it's a genetic switch that stayed on through the generations, and and now and, and, and so I've had to live a life of going, you know, in a in a different environment. Yeah, a much safer environment, but still with this high tension situation. And for me, anxiety is a lack of control. When am I more in control than when I'm standing on stage? So, so I remember so clearly when I was nine, we had this every every Friday as primary school had an assembly in the hall and this classes would take a turn to do a song or a skit or something, all right, during the assembly. And we had a, a, a little skit or a scene or something we were doing it. I had, I, had, I had one line and the scene was going on and I was to go out and I was to deliver my line and then leave the stage again. And the scene was going on and I heard my feed line and I walked out and I stood and I saw these hundreds of kids all staring at me, their mouths open. I mean, you know, they were five, so it's fair enough. And I paused for a second and I said the line, and the line was probably something like, I've got it right here, but because I'd waited long enough, I don't know, I must have got the comic timing just right. And the whole room just burst into laughter. And straight away, I noticed, oh, wow, all that noise, all that fear, everything in my head is quiet. Oh, this is good. And then when the laugh happened, it was like, this is a good feeling. I like this feeling. I want more of this. And so for the rest of my life, I chased that. I chased that. When I'm on stage, everything's fine. When I'm even, I went to America. I lived in America for a a while, about 10 years. And I I managed to become the first Australian, at this point, I think still the only, but I don't know, to host live network primetime television. All right. 10 million people coast to coast every night. It's huge. It's the Olympics. It's the Super Bowl. That's like, you, that is your jam life. It's the biggest thing. It's the reason I left everything in Australia and got my green card and, and left promising you know, career prospects behind here because I wanted that. I wanted that's the fucking gold medal. And I got it. And standing on that stage, standing in front of that at CBS um, Studio 46, it's like there the, are the two identical studios next to each other and the one next to us was shooting American Idol, right? So it's a fucking massive show, humongous production, millions of dollars in it. Those moments on camera were just when I'm speaking and I'm in, down the barrel, absolute serenity, all the fear, all the worry, all the rumination, all the anxiety, all the what if, all the weird feelings in my body completely gone and I chase those moments. I chase those moments my whole life and that's what I feel every single time I've done it. Like I love doing what I do and I love connecting with people but initially I chased it because I feel I'm free of that thing that just circles over me like a wedge-tailed eagle all day, you know. When I'm in, when I was on stage, when I was playing music, when I was on in bands, when I was, you know, whenever I was on radio, just those few, those seconds 
was just the respite from it. You know, when you think about, I don't know, you think of someone like uh, Kelly Slater, all right, when he's on a 10-point wave that wins him the world title, Mick Fanning, when Mick's on a 10-point wave that wins him the world title, that wave will maybe last 18 seconds. Do you think, you know, you're, you're experiencing such a level of bliss and like Kelly Slater, yeah. does it make the, the times outside of that, off the live air, hard to compare? Like how, yeah. and, and, and this sounds like you were, were you sort of battling with this all the time? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So when I wasn't, so basically I'd get off, I'd get off telly and you get up into a, you know, you get into a, I'm going to say a high. It's like a rush. Yeah. You get into the, you know, you're in game phase, you're in, 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 in game mode. And, you know, doing that kind of TV, whether it be Idol or V or, or anything, you know, you're, you're at a heightened level of, you know, here we go, we're in the middle of it. You know, you're firing on all cylinders, everything's moving. And then to come down from that was difficult. And so I was, using, I was using alcohol to come down from that. Eventually, the amount that I needed to drink to come down was just way too much. Uh, and it kind of really got out of hand to the point where I had to stop drinking because I could see where it was going. What were you drinking? Like, oh, yeah. my, a beer was my thing. Beer yeah. was easy because beer was socially acceptable. You know, you could have a beer. Like at, at home by yourself? With well, eventually, yeah. Eventually it, became, eventually it became drinking at home by myself. And then I did all the tricks that a good alcoholic does. You know, oh, beer's a bit lowbrow. I know. If I buy fancy bottles of red wine, then I'm a connoisseur. So it's acceptable. Ah, see, I'm not drinking at home alone. I'm enjoying a bottle of Penfolds. That's what I'm doing. You know, you sort of treat telling myself all kinds of shit, but I'm serious. I'm sitting at home alone drinking a bottle. It was like me and the bloke from the Royal Hotel at North Bondi. I'd even go to the bottle shop far away from my house. You know, <laughs> so how, how, like, how long was this going on for? And was, so was this a period of like, you, if you're not on show, you're sort of intoxicated at some level um, on show? Or, or I never, I, I never really drank on air. There was one show that we did that I kind of did, but that was half of the course. It was a show we did during the Olympics. I would basically, if I, I would never drink like on the day of the show, never drink on the way up to, I didn't need a drink to get me because I was just so excited about here it comes, yeah. here it comes that feeling, I'm going to get it, but I, and I want to be as present as I can for it. Here it comes. 7.30, bang, you're live. There it is. 8.31, off air. Oh, fuck, got a beer. <laughs> and then that was it, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the drinking started to creep outside of the weekends quite swiftly. What year are we talking here? Just oh, context. Look, when I was working in music, I, I started drinking in my teens and then I was, I was a roadie for a long time, which is a man that lifts heavy things for rock and roll bands. I got two hernias and hearing damage. It's, 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 it's so hard to, to, to tell with you because you don't age. Like, <laughs> well, I used to tell people, I used to tell people, I uh, said, so yeah, I'm, ve- I'm vegan. I cheat because I'm vegan. <laughs> I never smoked. I think that's the other thing. Smoking makes you... Uh, Smoking makes you look like a, an old person fast. You know what I mean? So that's the thing. So you started drinking in your teenage Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. But then, uh, then I got to a road, I became a roadie and it was the first band I worked for. They weren't really into it. The second band I worked for, they were right into it. And they taught me to drink like men, men on the road, men away from their families. We got only, we've only got 36 hours, boys. And so it was like a Bucks weekend every weekend, right? So it was that kind of drinking and then like proper, then then just binges and then the binges, the days between the binges got less and less. And then it got to a point where it, then I started, I started, I was using alcohol, like many people, I was using alcohol as a conveniently and socially acceptable medication for what was going on in my head. It's a depressant. It's easily available. People are happy if you drink it. I've had a shit of a day. You want a beer? That'd be great. No one cares. Everyone's fine. All right. 
You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I could die for a drink after the day I've had. Go right ahead. Go on ahead. Let me call you, pour you a double finger scotch. That's perfect. Everyone's cool with it, right? But, you know, what, what am I actually doing? I'm self-medicating with alcohol, right? And it got to a point where I just, the, the drinking stopped being with friends and started being alone. It got to a point where I couldn't, I wouldn't leave the house much. Is that when you um, realize this is now not just something to help me relax? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I was a long way. But I was a long way from stopping. I was a long way from stopping. Was this, you know, something, you know, we'd see on Australian Idol and there were James Matheson. Like I said, you were electric. You were bringing the energy. Yeah. Blonde hair, the smile. You were were that guy. Was so this, you know, behind the scenes though, this Andy G, he was dealing with this. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the second season of Australian Idol. We, I, I accepted a Logie that year. I know Anthony Clear was great and Casey Donovan won, but I don't remember doing it. Amazing. <laughs> I, I know it happened because I look on YouTube. Yeah. But that year, 2004, blurry, man, blurry. But um, I mean, the, you know, Pete, it, it, it just goes to show that you can function at such a high level. Yeah. Yet still, be, yeah. you know, battling your own demons privately. Yeah. But then it kind of it kind of crept the drinking crept out of that, and because I was you know we were on Idol, everybody wanted to be a part of it. You think about you know you've been to a big sporting event, whether it be the tennis or a, a race car thing or the horses. There's always like a marquee full of salespeople, right? So our green room was full of all the sponsors who were like, "Yeah, this is great. We're getting two million people a month. Fuck yeah!" And so it was every night after the show it was like fucking brilliant. Let's go, and, and it was all fine because it was and, like brilliant. You were, face. you were the consistent. Guy. Well, one of them. I was Every one of them. Year. Yeah, I was one of them. But it was like, it was all permissible, right? It was all great. But then the drinking started to be something that, you know, was creeping more and more outside of that. And then, you know, eventually became a thing that if I was going out, I needed two or three to, to get out the door before I left the house. And then, uh, you know, then when I got to Los Angeles, uh, there's a joke in LA <laughs> um, that I heard. I won't say her name, but it's this high profile Australian actress. She says, you don't realize you've got a drinking problem until you leave Australia. <laughs> and then you get there and you realize, oh, wow, we drink very differently to the rest of the world. We really do. I first noticed that when I went to Israel with my ex-wife, I went to Israel and I was like, I'm the only one here drinking a tolly straight from the bottle at this party. Oh, there's only two tallies here. And that was a beer for the whole room. Oh, that's a bit weird. You know, just, yeah. but here, it's, it's, you know, it's just a relationship that we have to alcohol What's as Australians. Yeah. And- yeah. And so it just got to a thing where it was just like every day and then, you know, the drinking got earlier and earlier. And I just, How many drinks do you think you were having a day? Someone I can't remember, but it got to a point where I knew it was a problem, but I was unable to stop it. And that was the thing. That was the, that was the, the wildest thing about it. Like the powerlessness over it. I, I would explain it like, like say for example, you and your, your beautiful partner uh, followed you on Instagram. You're in, you're in Italy, the Southern Italy, and you're having a great time. You're about to eat this fucking amazing tomato, you know, salad. And this tomato was on a vine that morning, you know, and it's, you're, it's warm from the sun. You're about to put it in your mouth and you're going to share this beautiful moment, this vista with your lover. And you can't, oh, my life's fucking great. And this mosquito comes down and bites you, right? And the itch starts to arrive on your arm. And then you're no longer thinking about the tomato or the fact you're here with this woman and, and life is amazing and you love her and you're here and you've traveled and you've worked hard to get here and this tomato is going to be great. All you can think about is itch. All you can think about is itch. And nothing can happen until you scratch that itch. Everything else disappears. You're no longer present to the moment. Like, I can itch this. I've got to itch it. I've got to itch it. I've got to itch it. Oh, I itched it. Oh, thank fuck I itched it. Oh, now it's bleeding. 
oh, that's going to get infected. And then no longer are you thinking about this warm tomato rest, you know, warmed by the sun or the fact that you're here with your lover or, or, you know, you know what I mean? It just takes you, you absolutely cannot continue until you have this thing. And that was happening every single day. You're losing the moment. I was every single day. I was every single day and earlier and earlier and earlier in the day to the point where I was, uh, Lao Tzu said, be careful of the direction you are headed for you may just end up there. And I could see well and truly where it was headed. Well, do you think that led to you know your relationship breakdown? Oh, it led to everything. It led to everything, man. I you know I ended up unemployed, crazy, and divorced on the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, what what at what point did you go right? I need to reach out to to someone else, or I need to work out how to address this because the path I'm going down is clearly not sustainable. Well, it was one, there was one, and I, and I write about it in the book, there was one particular night where it was no bigger than any other night, but it was just another night where I humiliated myself. I humiliated the people that loved me. I humiliated, you know, people around me. You know, I was just a disgusting, boring it's in America, you know, in LA. It was in New York, actually. Yeah. It wasn't any bigger night than any other night I'd had, but it was like, this happens no matter what I try. If I only drank beer, this wouldn't happen. No, nope, still happened. If I only drank wine, this wouldn't happen. Still happened. Hmm. Maybe I'll try spirits. No, nope, still happens. Maybe I'll start with the spirits and finish with the beer. No, nope, still happened. Like no matter what I tried, no matter how many times I tried to stop, it always ended up the same. You know, it was late. Something, some, well, someone was upset. I was vomiting. You know, like every single time I drank, it happened the same way. And I was like, I can't fucking do this again. It was affecting sort of who what you stand for and how you want to engage. I was no longer the one. I was no longer in charge. Yeah. I, I was no longer Handed in charge. Over the reins. I didn't have the drink. The drink had me. It's an old saying, but it's exactly what happened. I was no longer the one making decisions. And so I was like, I know where this is going to go. This is getting worse and I can't stop it from getting worse. The only way I can stop it from getting worse is to just not have the first one. What were family and friends sort of saying? Were they worried and understanding or were they? People had been telling me for years. People have been telling me since my 20s. Maybe you want to have a think about how much you, you know, maybe you want to think about what you're doing here. Do you really need to do this to yourself every single time? It's like, oh, would be just a dismiss It's like, you don't understand. Look at me. I'm fucking Funny, yeah. Of, I'm telling you, everything's awesome. And it wasn't. Part of this, I guess, persona that you yeah. built up. It was a it's definition true. that I've created of myself, yeah. And, and that was, yeah. I don't have a problem. I can stop whenever I want. Invincible, <laughs> you know. All, 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 all of us in our 20s, you know, particularly males, we, we think we're invincible. Yeah, but that eventually the, the handbrake starts to go on that kind of drinking and using and you start to realize, oh, you know what? I used to make a joke that you can plot the path of someone's career by the time between now and the last time they smoked a bucket bong. Uh, and the same, you know, the same goes to show is like when you stop that real full on mega, mega party, like you'd be surprised how, how much your life and career and enjoyment of everything can, can explode once you've, you know, stop that sort of thing and use those energies for, for things that can, you know, help you help others, help your family. And yeah, I just, man, I, I just knew that it, I couldn't do it again. So that I couldn't do it one more time. That, that night in New York, you're saying yeah. it's a bit of a pivotal night. Yeah, yeah. Going, hey, I actually need to do something. Yeah. Is yeah. that coinciding with you said you you were jobless? Was that coinciding? I don't know, man. I was I was employed at the time. The point then yeah. afterwards, when 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 were you jobless? When Oh, that was later. later. But you know, that was just still there. It was like it was like it was like an oil tanker crashing onto a coral reef in slow motion. You know, I might have stopped drinking, but the momentum of the 
energy that I had been putting into the world kept going and the wreckage just kept happening for a long time until I actually started really doing the work on actually staying sober. We talked about medication before. There's a big difference between not drinking and being sober. I was just not drinking. So what I had done, we talked about the fact that alcohol can be used as a a widely available depressant to, you know, put the handle on, you know, a vast variety of mild mental illness or someone's sometimes more severe. I'd essentially come off my meds and not done anything about it. So I'd taken the depression out of my life and now it was just me and the anxiety. Cold turkey. Boom. Face it. I didn't do anything about it. And that's a buildup of I went nuts, man. I went, I went, I went, I was, it was, and so everything just kind of got, to be honest, got worse because I didn't do the work as to why I was drinking. So now you can look back on that knowing what you know. Absolutely. I I didn't do that right. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It was like, you know. But you weren't to know. You just knew I need to stop drinking. Oh, I knew. I absolutely knew. But my ego was so huge that I was like, I don't need to go to that. I don't need to sit on a folding chair under a church and talk about steps. I'm fine. I did. (laughs) (laughs) And then I did. And then it was much better. (laughs) It was much, much better. (laughs) Okay. So, so. Take us a, a few steps forward. So yeah. when, when you came to the realization that, you know, you do need to do these extra things to, yeah. to sort of help you settle the anxiety yeah. and, and be able to live a sober life and be happy, yeah. be in the moment. Yeah. Where did you go? Where did you go for that help and the guidance? Uh, how do I put this? I am a part of a, a, a fellowship of men and women who work together to spread experience, strength and hope around not drinking together. It's a step-based program, slightly more than 11, one less than 13. <laughs> so you can, you can do the reverse engineering of what I'm trying to talk about. Uh, but basically, I, I didn't know what sobriety looked like and I didn't know what working a program looked like. All I knew was depressed people sitting in, in smoky rooms with bad cups of coffee under a church, you know, unfolding chairs with vinyl floors going, hey, I'm a sure I'm alcoholic. Like we see in the movies. Like you see in the movies. I'd never met a sober person that I thought was like, I want that. I was on holidays at the end of 2009 and I met a photographer who, I don't know if you're aware of, there's an extraordinary artist uh, by the name of Tom of Finland. He would, he would draw these caricatures of gay men that were just like fucking Adonis. Like He-Man was a Tom of Finland, right? He basically, you know, these beautiful caricatures of like the most perfect, kind of like the Leatherman from uh, Village People, you know, big moustaches, amazing pecs, big dicks, fucking you name it. Like he looked like that. He had all the sailor tattoos down his arms and he was handsome and he was fun. He had a jaw that could slice cake and he was gay as Christmas, but brilliant and just a lovely man. Fucking amazing photographer, life of the party and sober. Uh, I didn't know it could look like that. I didn't know it could look as healthy and incredible and glowing and successful. And like this guy's flying, he flies all over the world in small planes taking photos. Still to this day, he's a very, very talented man. And I remember calling him up going, mate, I'm, I, I, we met when we were on holidays and you live nearby in West Hollywood. I need a meeting. Can you take me? And he goes, yeah, sure, I'll take you. So the first meetings I went to were all gay meeting. And I'm sitting there in this room with men who were completely different upbringings from me. Yeah, completely different lives. You know, obviously I was one of the only if not the only straight man in the room. So very, very different when it comes to relationships, sexual relationships. But every person that got up and talked was like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me too. Oh, that's me three. 
And here I am thinking I'm some sort of special snowflake, but no. <laughs> just the people that could relate. I could hear their stories. I'm like, oh, right. So we all have this thing. Oh, we all have this thing. Oh, right. Oh, well, at least there's a path out of it. Oh, okay. And yeah, now I've just been following that path since then. And then, you know, to answer your question more about, you know, when it comes to managing my mental health, that that was a lot that kind of got worse because I didn't look after it. When it comes to managing my mental health, I, I, I hadn't really been taking that very seriously. And again, that's, that's also progressive. If you don't look after that, it's... um. It can, uh, it, it can get worse. And it did, it got way worse. And I, I went through periods of, of, of psychosis, uh, paranoid delusions, which I do not recommend at all. And that was in sobriety. You know, so I was on medication for a long time. And a part of that, I was on two separate kinds of antipsychotics um, and uh, like a, a, all kinds of other things. I was in the world of what they call polypharmaceuticals. So were, they, were they being prescribed? Oh, absolutely. Like psychiatrist? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was I that, straight to the top. Was that like you know, hey, Osh, I'm giving you these medications and you're going to be on these for life? Or was this like, we're going to work through this for the moment? You well, it was a lot like, it was a lot like my, my drinking. I didn't want to accept that I was experiencing psychosis. I didn't want to accept that I was experiencing paranoid delusions. I didn't want to need these drugs, but I was and I did and, you need and I really needed it. And once I accepted, because I did the classic mental health thing of like, the doctor told me to take it only when I need it. If I don't take it, then I don't need it. Ah, brilliant. Wasn't, you know, uh, it was horrible. I was, I was, that was in the first, uh, second season of Bachelor. I was living over there on um, uh, where the backpackers is. And uh, we're, we're sitting in Bondi. Yeah, yeah. So it was about, about a kilometer away. Yeah. I just stood in, in South Bondi there. And I remember sitting in there just like freaking fingernails into the table, you know, if I don't need. If I, if, if I have to take it, then I don't need it. Then I won't have psychosis. But I, I did. And I really did. I really needed. So I had to be in acceptance of this is what my brain's doing. I need to take this drug. And, and this is bigger than me. I need something bigger than me to fix it. All right. So something bigger than me, something outside of my body is this drug. So I'll take this drug. But then I need to take another drug and then another and another. So I ended up on four different kinds of medications until I finally started feeling okay. That, that was extraordinary because... You, you're taking all these meds and then you start to feel, oh, wow, I can't believe I was doing that for so long. I can't believe I was feeling that horrible for so long. But then there's side effects. You know, every, every medic, medication has a benefit and a side effect and the side effects of those kind of medications, they really mess with your metabolism. And no matter how much exercise I was doing, I was back and forth from Los Angeles still. So I went back to Los Angeles and I was, I was riding my bike 250, 300 Ks a week up mountains. Like, because when you, I lived in Venice Beach, as you do, and maybe 20 minutes away is Topanga Canyon. So you're in proper mountains, like proper 7%. This is like 2014, 15. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's like 7%, 10% hills to climb up there. And I'd be up there for hours every day. I'd be riding two, three hours a day. And I'm still putting on a kilo a week, you know, and I'm burning calories, burning calories. That's a lot of weight. Yeah. And I'm still putting, on a, still putting on a kilo a week because it messes with the way your body metabolizes food. It fucks with your insulin response. And, and it's, it sucks. I think, and I remember getting to the point where I was turning back around. We got greenlit for the third season, Sam Wood season of Batch. I remember going to see my psychiatrist and going, mate, I'm down to track pants. I'm running out of clothes. We've got to do something here. <laughs> so he's, he was very good, actually. He helped, you know, we kind of started to, I was doing a lot better. And he's like, look, if, if I can make all this stuff go away. I can make all the noise in your head go away. I can make all the fear and horror go away, but you'll gain 50 pounds. 
I said, I can't do that. That's my job. And, you know, this is a fact of my job. And so we had to find other strategies to deal with that. And through that, we found a different diagnosis and I got on different meds and that's how we got the OCD diagnosis. And once I got on the OCD meds and everything seems to started getting better. And then I was on OCD meds for a long time. But during that, have you ever done a knee? Have you ever done an ACL or anything like no. that? No. Have you got friends, haven't they? Yeah, wear that big knee brace? And I've treated uh, footy players with yeah. their ACL. And they, they wear that knee brace? Yeah. All right. So yeah, much like your life in a physio, right? You put a knee brace on someone, all right? And then in that safe plane of motion, they build the muscle memory of the safe and, and the, the, the muscles learn the, the safer plane of movement mm-hmm. that doesn't a- aggravate the, the issue. Yeah. And then when you take the brace off, the muscle memory is there and then the gait has shifted slightly and then now the problem's not there anymore. So the meds were very much like that. The meds are his, like the knee brace for your head. And so you just have to wear that, but we have to do all this other work to rewire everything so that the thinking doesn't go down the horror paths all the time. And then slowly, 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 we came down off the meds, down off the meds, down off the meds. But during that, my brain actually healed and regained the ability to start making new neural pathways again, which was fucking good. And so that was in December, 2017. I finally came off, I've been off meds. How much work were you putting into that? Is that like a uh, weekly session or daily? Um, oh, no, I, oh, oh, no, no. So that, the head work, was yeah. it like going to see my psychologist yeah. and psychiatrist every week? So like I, I run a double therapist situation and I compare it to rally driving. The psychiatrist is the mechanic who makes sure the machine works. The psychologist is the navigator. He's like left, right, right. And so that team worked really, works really well for me. And so I've been running that for a couple of years now and through both of those people and then doing the work every day myself. And like that involves a lot of journaling, a lot of like catching yourself thinking, a lot of, you know, breathing, a lot of rewiring your, your instant responses to things. Slowly, 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 slowly. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. I managed to get a lot, a lot better. And then when I got off meds altogether, I'm like, I've got to do something to fill this gap. And, and that's when this men's health thing showed up. And so the opportunity to do resistance training every day, I'd only ever really ridden the bicycle. I didn't really like gyms that much. And so I'd never really done that much resistance training. But honestly, in, in the resistance training, that's lifting weights, I found a release because I'd done marathons. I've done all endurance stuff before that. I'd run marathons and all this ultras and all this kind of thing. I'm training for an ultra at one point. You know, I would get that that hormone release of the dopamine, the serotonin, the norepinephrine, and there's one other one, I can't remember what it is, endorphin. endorphin. I get that, but it only happened after about you know, an hour and a half of running. But during resistance training, I was finding that, that the hormone release in my head would start to happen a lot earlier and I would feel so much better in my brain through the day. And then I started to figure out, why is this? And I was like, oh, because these things are getting released. And I, had, I had a problem with dopamine and serotonin already but it seemed to like that had healed a bit and I was able to make yeah. it a bit better now. And so it was during those sessions that I was finding just extraordinary transformational happenings in my head when it came to my mood. And like my mother-in-law, I only would see her, they live in Brisbane and she would come down every like four or five or six weeks and then she'd go, wow, you're a lot more calm to be around. Yeah, I am. <laughs> People could know. Absolutely. And that's the biggest compliment because I feel the same. Yeah. All right. But the biggest compliment is how other people are around me and how they treat, how they describe their experience of me. Uh, unfortunately, my wife, Audrey, has had to deal with the shittiest part of me. And the fact that she's still married to me is bloody wonderful. How did you meet her? 
we met on set. We were the one couple that made it out of Blake Garvey's season. I thought, I thought you might. You, you may well be Bachelor's um, most it, successful where, where couple. The, where, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, there's others. There's, there's too many. Where the unsuccessful, and Sam, Sam and Schnez have a baby. Um, <laughs> we're the unofficial second couple of the show because, yeah, we got we uh, we met on the second season. She was my makeup artist. Yeah. And um, did you... Did you hand her a rose on the on the? Show? I never, I never touch the roses, man. I only ever count them. People always have that misconception. I never touch them. I, I touch them on the first night when I show them off. Hey boys, hey girls, you're gonna want one. But I never, I never, I never hand them. Never hand them out. That's Batchy's or Batchette's job. I don't do it. Um, but yeah, so she's she's been incredible, and she's actually what was really full on is that Audrey and I dedicated the book to her because she was the first person who was able to break through the paranoid delusion. Uh, paranoid delusion is an absolute unshaking belief that cannot be shifted by the presence of fact, all right? So, for example, you've got a dog, and if I say, hey, Simon, nice cat, you're like, no, it's a dog. Mm, that's a cat. All right, you see it as, you know, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, what I see is a cat. How did she break through that? I don't know, man. I don't know, but there was something about her... Something about the way she did it, she was able to. She was able to break through this, as in she could get you to see. The she was truth. the first. She was. It was the first time that the the horror and the fear that my brain was trying to convince me was real. Because essentially, what was happening is my brain was distorting the input, what I saw, what I heard. You know, so my experience of reality was different to those other people standing around me, which is very, very frightening, and I don't recommend it at all. Mm. Um, but she was the first person to break through that, and. You know, I really, it must have been really full on. She got, she got into a relationship with a guy who was really ill and I've since gotten a lot better uh, and I couldn't be more happy that, you know, she kind of held on because I'm really lucky, man. It's incredible. I'm so lucky. The, the, the timing of just it being is. on the show and, you know. Yeah. Well, she was able to see that this thing is, you know, it's like a busted knee. Like here's this guy that I'm into, but he's got this busted knee. All right. So here's this guy that I'm into, but his brain's a bit busted at the moment. All right, she was able to see the two things as separate. She could see past that. She could see the two things as separate. Like when I was a bit weird, she goes, oh, that's just the disease fucking with his head right now. And I can help that. I I can't work with that, but I can tell him, you know, see the two of them as separate. She was able to do that, which was fascinating. Yeah, she's an amazing woman and I'm so lucky to have her. So lucky to have her. I wouldn't wouldn't be here without her. I wouldn't be here alive without her. There's no question in my life. This special, special, you know, yeah, I'm skills, really lucky. But she's got. I'm really lucky, man. She's the kindest wow. person I've ever known. Now, um, back after the break, yeah, the title, right? That's the book, yeah. But this is this is incredible. It, yes, I made a, I made a, I made a psychosis pun uh, in the book title because I used to always say, "Which one of these people is going to leave Australian Idol?" We'll be back after the break, and it's, that was the tease, right? It's such a Fitting title, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And so when you when you have a when you go through an episode of psychosis, it's called you having a break because you're having a break from reality. You can't tell, you know, what's real and what's not real. I was seeing things, I was hearing things. It was fucking frightening. Um, so yeah, that's the. So that's this the this um it hit well it, it's it's out later this month, later yeah. August, August twenty something. Yeah, yeah, yep. And no doubt goes into so much more detail than what we've discussed. But the the when you say after the break, yeah. When when do you like when was that? Uh, so all the, I was, the, the February 21st, 2014 was the day that my brain kind of popped open. Yeah. I remember that was my brother's birthday. And I was pretty, I was uh, about 18 months, two years of 
nearly daily. Working through it all. Uh, no, it was daily, just horror. Daily just, horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was through the meds, through everything. It was, it was pretty fucked. I only started really feeling better once we changed onto the change meds and got on the OCD meds. And so I started writing the book when I was still medicated and I finished writing the book off meds. So that's interesting. So when you yeah. look back and you read parts that you were writing while yeah. you're on the meds versus off the meds, is it is it different? No, not, it not, is- not so much. But I was on a fairly minimal dose. We were okay. in the, you don't just stop taking meds. It took six months to come down off slowly off these drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I, I, if there's one thing I, I'm a big fan of, it's science and listening to my doctors. <laughs> so when he says, we're just going to take it over, take it slow over six months, it's okay, we'll do that. Yeah. And so it's been, I, I, I get to live a life now of very deliberate self care. I get to live a life of, uh, if there's, if I don't get my workout in, if I don't at least get on the bike, if I don't at least get like 20 minutes of just really simple body movement might just be push-ups, might just be hanging from the chin-up bar. It might just be, you know, I've, I'm, I went a bit overboard. Time's a bit of a factor at the moment. So too many kettlebell swings, not enough stretching. And I kind of tweaked my back a bit. Um, so I can't. the hard way. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so I can't, uh, haven't been able to do any kind of big compound lifts or okay. compound movements at the moment. I really miss my kettlebell swings, man. I miss them so much. I love kettlebell swings. Fantastic. You get them done. You get it done. Swings and get-ups, man. You don't need long either. Shit, you- man. Swings and get-ups. Yeah. If, you, if you do 20 minutes of swings and get-ups, you'll be fine for your day and you feel amazing. And then I started getting into double swings and I'm doing double get-ups and double cleans and shit. I'm like, I'm fucking powerful. <laughs> it was great. Uh, I was, then I'd run upstairs and go to work and I didn't stretch and then then my back started getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Anyway, so at the moment, I still get to live this life of, I, I get to live a life of deliberate self-care, which makes you makes me, I try to get as, as present as I can be. Uh, it's still a struggle, you know, still this, my brain will always have the thing that tipped me over. Um, whereas before the horror was like a billboard two feet in front of my face when I couldn't see anything but this terror, but this terrifying message. Now it's kind of like a post-it note in the corner of that table. All right. It's still here right now as we sit and speak. The horror is still there. I'm like, okay, all right. It's still there and it'll probably be there for the rest of my life. But I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with, with it. I'm going to manage it. But if I don't get that self-care in every day and that involves making sure that I eat right, making sure that I, I get some amount of physical activity in every day to the point where I get that hormonal release to, you know, just enough. You can just, I honestly, I try and get most of it done while I'm waiting for the coffee machine to warm up. Simon, I'll, while I turn the coffee machine on, I'll do just 20 squats in the kitchen and I'll just do a set of 20 push-ups, and I'll just hang from the bar. I'll just hang from the bar. Get and that release. Try and work on my L-sit while the coffee machine warms up and then five minutes are done and I'll make my coffee. And like, that's enough just to kind of kick things into gear and let the brain start to squirt that stuff in there to make it feel a bit better. It's nice that I get to still wear tailored suits, but that's not the goal. You know, the goal isn't that I'm just kind of this V-shaped Adonis. Or well, I mean, I mean, you're a humble man. There's, you're. Um, I've heard, I've heard some, some rumors, some Chinese whispers that perhaps you're on the front cover of uh, a very big magazine. Yeah, shed some yeah. light on that. It's interesting how things manifest, man. I never in my career have I taken my shirt off for you know for a camera. It's been a deliberate choice because uh, I've always kind of been bigger than a lot of people realized. And I always had a lot of shame about my body. And I always kind of said to myself, you know what? I'll go shirtless 
when I'm on the cover of Men's Health. That was the thought in my head. And then so when they approached me at the end of 2017 saying, we want to do a transformation issue with you, I'm like, I am all in. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. So it's a obsessive and compulsive disorder is interesting because it has good points and bad points. Bad points are well documented. The good points are like, when you want to do something, you get it done. Set your mind. <laughs> you it. get it done. You get it really done. So I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And I dropped, I dropped eight kilos of fat and I put on two kilos of muscle in three, four months. Huge. Three, four months. Vegan diet. Smashed it. Yeah. And, and at the end, the last month was a gluten freak. So I discovered I was celiac yeah. towards the end. And I've seen the photo and you look shredded <laughs> and you, you've, you, the muscle definitions there. It's I wouldn't recommend the last couple of days, man. I don't know. Like now I know what all those dudes, like seriously, those guys on Instagram, they must just like go into like some sort of peak week situation where 17 different outfits get taken photos in five, 15 different locations and then use those photos for the next six months because you can't. It's unsustainable. Hard, hard yeah. It's unsustainable to stay like that. You can't stay like that. Yeah, you were shredded. You can't stay. I was, oh my God. Like, I needed carbohydrate. <laughs> I couldn't think straight. It's like, this is bullshit. Yeah. I need twice as many calories as I'm eating. I can see the veins in my stomach, but <laughs> I don't feel very good. It's not sustainable. No, it's not sustainable. And a friend of mine was telling me that his, his brother's a bodybuilder and it's like mm. the amount of people that hurt themselves at bodybuilding competitions falling over after they pose because they're so depleted. They're, you know, it can't be good for you. Mm. It can't be good for you. Anyway, I feel great. The photos look, Incredible. I never believed in my life that it ever looked like that. During the photo shoot, the art director for the magazine goes, Oh, nice abs. No one in my life has ever said that about my body, ever. But Simon, that wasn't the goal. All right. The goal is like, I need something, I need something to 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 fill the gap where the meds were. All right. That there's this aesthetic situation. It's nice. I'm not gonna lie. There's a bit of vanity about it, but I'm more mentally resilient than I've ever been in my life because of living this way, because of deliberately being really deliberate about my food. When I eat, I try as hard as I can not to rush. I'm like, all right, put the phone down. I'm just going to eat. I'm going to eat this incredible bowl of food that I've now made. Like, Because I was basically existing on a toast-based diet. I didn't eat it very well as a vegan. But now I'm like, okay, so if I put this and this and this together, and then I take the time to prepare it, I get really into the chopping you know, and everything. And then I put it all together and I make a really lovely dressing. And then I eat it and I spend like 20 minutes, half an hour eating the salad, every single bite, like, man, this is going to, this is great. This is turning into my skin. This is turning into my muscles. This is nourishing me and fulfilling me. And like, this was grown in a farm and someone worked hard to pick it and like trying to be as hard as I can to be present to it. And then, you know, feeling how good my body feels when I do that resistance training, when I do get on the bicycle, when I do work on the bike, I edited the whole book sitting on my bike by the way, put a laptop on my, above my bike trainer. I have a- Multitask. Yeah, yeah. But I, 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 that book was edited at a thousand calories an hour. Uh, <laughs> just sat in zone two. I just sat in zone two, put the trainer on auto, sat in zone two and just pedaled while I wrote. Um, and that was amazing. But I've never felt more mentally resilient. And that, you know, I understand that it's, it's not like headache. It's, you know, every single person's mental illness journey is completely different. And what worked for me will not work for you. Don't try it. You work with your doctors. Find your path. I'm telling you what, you know, this is a, a, a version that worked for me, but I find that I can't control so many things in my life. What I can control is I can control what I eat. I can control 
how much activity I'm doing during the day, even carrying an injury. I'm like, okay, so I can't do that. What can I do? I control the purpose that I approach things with. I control how much time I spend engaging with my family. I can control, you know, my outlook. I can control how I feel about what I decide about things. You know, I, you know, I didn't get picked up for that job. I can decide how I feel about it. I can feel bitter about it or I can go, I'm really grateful they chose that other person. They'll do really well. Good for them. You know, I decide, I choose these things. And so what are the things that I can control? These are the things I try and focus on. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not just one thing, but it's all of these things combined. Are these, these learnings, are these, are these sort of touched on in your book? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it fleshed out, obviously. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And if you were able to go back in time mm. and talk to the young Osh, yeah. you know, the, the 20, 21, 22 oh, dear God. year old Osh yeah. who was coming through, yeah. what, what advice would you give him for the coming couple of decades or just life advice in general to help him navigate his way through life? I'd probably say the, the, the most important thing that you can learn right now is the connection between physical activity and your emotional state. And I would say, you know, work hard on developing the skill of emotional regulation, learn how to breathe, learn how to catch moods, learn how to control your own body's responses. And don't fucking drink so much, pal. <laughs> <laughs> just life will be all right. You're enough, mate. You're enough. Just, just it's going to be okay. That's what I'd say. But those two things, without a shadow of a doubt, like if you can, it, it, even if, even if just if the, if the one thing that you learn how to do is is recognize your own moods, be present to your own mood shifts, and learn how to regulate the ups and downs. Breathing's a really big part. You so know, that will help you it. not rely on the alcohol. Uh, it will it will help you not if you can catch it early, then it won't. Hopefully, it won't spin up into something way bigger that then you go. Oh, I'm going to need a drink. Mm. It's hard, right? Though, like if someone's listening and they're you know 19, 20 year old coming through, yeah. and they're on neighbors or on TV, and they're being invited to all of these events, mate. and every event has drinking and whatnot. Is the temptation yeah. is always there? It's, yeah, no, mate. Does that person want to hear it? <laughs> Just know that the moment that you stop that kind of drinking is the moment that your true exponential career explosion will start. So you decide when that's going to happen. All right. That's a good way to look at it. You decide when that's going to happen. And that's up to you, buddy. You can drink like that and you can party like that and that's fine. But then you'll be 40 and your mates are, you know, the men and women around you or, 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 you know, starting businesses and, you know, have hundreds of thousands of dollars in their super and you're still renting. Sure. Go for it, pal, if that's what you want. But the sooner you stop that, the sooner you start the extraordinary exponential explosion because it's just time, man. It's just time. You don't have to go far to explore what compound interest looks like. And, you know, it's the same with your body. It's the same with your mind. You start investing early in that sort of stuff. And before you know it, you'll have 10 years on anybody else, man. And it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Just do it every day. And the, and the book to, to, to get it, to access it, where is it going to be and what, oh. what's the exact date it's coming out? Uh, book's out August 20. You, there's a link in my Instagram profile. I'll, I'll put that. Oh, Instagram. thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, the audio book is coming out too. My wife was the executive. She produced it, which is great. So we sat much like you and I sitting now and I read it and she went, no, nah, do it again. Oh, she's not sitting on my lap. Uh, no, she's like, <laughs> no, nah, do it again. Do it again. Nah, you sounded, nah, you sound pretentious. Do it again. 
she was great. She was a great director. Uh, so Audrey uh, produced the book. Yeah, and then hopefully there's some live shows going around. We're putting a I'm putting a live show together because the whole thing started as a storytelling show at a at a theater called Giant Dwarf. Um, this extraordinary bunch of people who run a thing called Story Club, Ben Jenkins and Zoe Norton Lodge. And Zoe's actually directing the show. So we're putting a storytelling show together because it started as a storytelling show. So we're going to turn it into a storytelling show. There might be some songs. That's awesome. I'm, I'm going to come along to one. Yeah, you should, man. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be a fun night. Yeah, it'll be a fun night. And you asked me this question when I was a guest on your podcast. Oh, yeah? Which is a, I should thank you for your podcast, actually. You've put in so much work on that. You're up to like 200 and 250 or something like that. It's just incredible. Amount. But I just do it. It's the same time. You just do it every day. Yeah. You do it every day and then all of a sudden it's all there. Yeah. You know, it's the same. But absolutely smashing it on that night. Oh, I'm glad. I'm really grateful you came on. It was really good. But food wise, yeah. Let's, if Osh has his choice of any, any, vegan meal, whatever, whether breakfast, lunch or dinner, what is your, what gets you salivating? Oh, look, my favorite thing right now, my favorite thing right now is just this massive chickpea salad. All right. I'm just loving chickpeas right now. I've just got this pressure cooker, right? And so if you make the chickpeas in the pressure cooker and you throw some, some spices and stuff in there, the flavors get in there. But yeah, just, you know. Spices, that's where it's at. It's just some iceberg lettuce. Some spinach, just some crunch. I love some crunch in my salads. So, a bit of celery, a bit of carrot. Uh, I pop some some lupin flakes on top of the salad, and then some nutritional yeast, and just a tiniest little bit, maybe I don't know, like a teaspoon or of olive oil, and some chili. Something about the mm. olive oil, the chili, and the and the nutritional yeast. Boy, howdy! Nutritional yeast is That's like the greatest thing ever. Just. Heaven. I have a bag this big. <laughs> oh, seriously, I have a bag this big at home. I'm I'm making like this just like as big as a grocery bag in my house. I don't think I've ever met a vegan who doesn't they don't just have like a smile, huge smile every time you mention nutrition. It's so tasty. It's that it's that flavor. It's that flavor we talked about at the very start of this. That thing that makes you go, ooh. <laughs> um, so because I, you know, I work on set a lot. So I now I take this big esky kind of food with me everywhere yeah. I go. And if I know that's in the, in the, oh, I can't wait for lunch break. Oh, I can't wait for lunch break. Yeah. And then, yeah, that's my favorite. That's right now, that salad is my, is my favorite thing. My second favorite thing would be the curry that my wife cooked me the night, the first night she came over for dinner where I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm falling in love with you. Fijian food is an extraordinary mix of traditional Islander kind of food, a lot of coconut, a lot of, you know, earth ovens, that sort of thing but also the big Indian influence because the British colonization brought a lot of Indians over to to run a lot of the farming. And so Audrey, she made this eggplant and potato curry the first night she came over and she even rolled the raw tea and everything. It's like, mate, that is just so good. My wife's wife's eggplant potato curry is freaking amazing. Amazing. And every time I smell it, boom, I'm back to the night I fell in love with her. thinking about this. (laughs) I'm back to the night I fell in love with her, you know. And um, her mom is actually a a clinical dietitian. And so her mom came around the other night and she was cooking. She's like, I figured out a way to do gluten-free raw tea. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so what she did is she got some, she got some potato and she mashed the potato down. She baked it a little bit and she put that together with some gluten-free flour and she made a a, a spongy raw tea that I could pick food up, belly, belly. Bet that, I bet that made you happy. I was thrilled. Thrilled. Yeah. It was worth the extra hour on the bike. <laughs> now we're, we're getting to the end of the, uh, of this one, but yeah, the, the Apple sound that went off. Oh yeah. Early on in this episode. Tell us, enlighten us. What, what is that? Okay. So the startup noise that your computer makes, the bah, it's 
bit convoluted, but Steve Jobs, we know who he is. Paul McCartney, we know who he is. He used to be in a band called The Beatles. The Beatles had a record company called Apple. So when Steve Jobs started his computer company, no, 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 you can't do that. We're Apple. He goes, no, fuck you, I'm Steve Jobs. And they with a big court battle and then the Beatles side were like, all right, look, you can never do music because we do music. <laughs> so that chord, that sound you hear is the final chord of A Day in the Life, which is a song off the album of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And that opening sound is the final chord of that song. And on the original Apple Max, the drop-down menu, the name of that sound was S-O-S-U-M-I. means Sosumi. Like, I'm using your music. Fuck you. Sosumi. It's incredible. <laughs> Jobsy. A subtle little message. Jobsy. <laughs> and he sits on, you know, went on to re- completely go, screw it, I'm, I'm changing music forever. And, you know, created iTunes and changed, changed the entire business model of the music industry and they never recovered. <laughs> yeah. Interesting guy. Interesting guy. I don't know if he was the nicest man in the world. He certainly got a lot of stuff done. Changed the world. That's brilliant. He was, uh, you know, as far as, as, as a human, he most definitely had his flaws. Mm. But yeah, it's a very driven dude. Very, very driven guy. And um, no shit, changed Apple, my life. Look, Apple, Apple's everywhere. Apple's everywhere. Apple takeover. Uh, Apple won't win though. Google will win. Google, Google <laughs> will win because their operating system is, you know, the more handsets. I'll win. That's fine. I still have my fancy phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, I would just love to thank you for coming on. Oh, and, thanks for having me, man. And I think, you know, like I said at the start, you're, not many people know the, the, the Osh, the, no. what's happened behind the scenes. And thank you for having the strength uh, no to worries. come on and share what a, you know, some, what we've covered, which is very <laughs> personal. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, there'll be no doubt listeners who can, take a lot away from it yeah. and be able to relate to it. Well, I think, you know, when I went to those meetings we talked about, you know, the thing that was really powerful for me was hearing other people talk, all right, and hearing their stories. And like I told you, it was like, oh, I have that too. Oh, I feel less alone. Oh, and you're better. Oh, maybe I can get better. All right. And it was in hearing someone else's story that made me go, oh, I'm not by myself on this. And so that's what I'm trying to do, man. I'm just trying to make it a little more normal to have conversations like this so that when people do hear these conversations, it's not so weird that when someone close to them is going, oh, life is really strange. You know, I think a dog's a cat. You know, everything's, you know, odd. It's not so frightening that you just go, oh, it's just something, a little switch is busted in your brain. Let's go and help that out. And there's a path to wellness for many, many, many of those people. We didn't talk much about veganism. We didn't talk much about eating plants. Is that all right? That's fine. It's a plant-proof podcast. Are plant-proof you sure? podcast, but all your right. story is are you sure? so much bigger than oh, just, okay. just vegan. All right, then. Yeah. What you're saying, I mean, it's cool. That the, the, so the driver behind your book is to just have people understanding your story but talking more about. Yeah, it's just make it more normal to have a conversation. It's just a conversation about people have this idea of what complex mental illness might look like. They have an idea about what someone who's going through psychosis might look like they might not realize that they were watching that every night on the telly. That was me standing there two nights a week, Wednesdays and Thursday nights, counting roses on four different kinds of meds, you know, with all kinds of delusions in my head, riding my bicycle to work, seeing visions, all this kind of shit, but managing. All right. And that was what I was doing. And you saw it every night. Yeah. So let's talk more about what you saw and maybe you can maybe shift your perspective on what mental illness looks like in our community. And then when you do hear someone close to you or someone, you see someone that might be struggling a bit, you go, oh, it's just, they're just a bit sick right now, but they can get better. All right. That's, that's basically it. 
Mate, I can't, I, just, I can't wait to get a copy. <laughs> you got it, man. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Tom. Thanks, show. Eves. Cheers, Thanks, bro. <laughs> and that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.